You're listening to In My Father's House with our pastor and teacher, Mike Fenizio, Senior Pastor of Harvest Christian Fellowship in New York City, New York. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. In my Father's house, where I long to be, oh, my heart will not be troubled. I remember what you said. When the scales are removed from before their eyes, no longer will they refer to their God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they will bow down and worship and acknowledge Christ as the second person of the Godhead, as God Almighty. What a day that's going to be for the Jews, right? Remember that God isn't finished with what he had promised to do amongst his people, Israel. And many of those promises will come to fruition during the seven years of tribulation. God's covenant people, the Jews, whom he sought to reach the world through, rejected his son, the salvation of the world. They, in fact, crucified him. Yet, as Pastor Mike teaches today, he hasn't forgotten and will not forsake his people, the Jews. God will use the trials and suffering of the tribulation period to bring his people back to himself. Some of them will finally recognize Jesus as Messiah and confess faith in him before it's too late. They will grieve their original rejection of Jesus and finally worship him as he deserves. Now here's Pastor Mike in the book of Revelation chapter 14 as he continues his message, The Lamb's Redeemed. We have the list of the 144,000, the 12 tribes, uh, 12,000 out of each tribe, and many Bible teachers, and I don't want to be dogmatic about this, but I I believe that they are correct when they have suggested that verse 9 is actually the result and the outcome of their being called and sealed by God to that occupation of preaching the gospel. This is the result of that. Let's read verse 9. After these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. And remember, the palm branches always suggest victory, right? So now their victory is in Jesus Christ. So I believe that verse 9 is actually the result of and the outcome of this 144,000 who are sealed by God to go forth into all of the world to preach the gospel. You know, I believe that it's through these 144,000 where the great commission that has been given to the church is now fulfilled. And that's just my take on it. Just wanted to put it out there. Uh, You can come into your own conclusions, uh, but just something that I wanted to uh, draw your uh, attention to. So again, the 144,000, 
They've been saved. They've been sealed. They've been faithful to the trust that has been committed to them to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, their king, to come. And again, there in chapter 7 and verse 9, I believe that that is the result of their effort and preaching. This great multitude of people. It's a diverse, notice how diverse this group is, out of all nations. So this is the effect that they had in their occupation of preaching the gospel. Okay, now let's go back to verse 1 for some further descriptions of this group. So the seal, verse 1, on their foreheads, and again, as I mentioned before, I'm not quite sure if this is some visible mark that identifies them as a a true worshiper of God. Again, it, it may just suggest, you know, they're easily recognized as a true disciple of Jesus Christ by the way that they live their lives, by the way that they conduct themselves, you know, even as we are identified as Christians by the way that we live our lives and the way that we conduct ourselves, right? Or probably even more important, the, the things that we don't become involved in, right? And, uh, you know, we don't conduct ourselves the same way that worldlings conduct themselves. And, and I'm not saying that to be derogatory or anything, but, you know, we're, we're committed to living our lives as is prescribed for us in God's Word. There's a definite difference, right, between a believer and a non-believer. So anyway, the seal, whatever it is, whether it's the lifestyle that they live or whether it's some visible mark on their foreheads, it proclaims their ownership, their character, their loyalty to the Lamb. Now, we're going to come back to that idea in just a moment. So again, I want you to hold on to it. I'm not finished developing this idea. We'll come back to it in just a moment. But think about it in contrast to the mark of the beast. Remember, we talked about that last time. Chapter 13, verses 16 and 17. And that mark of the beast, right, identified his followers. Wasn't that true? We talked about that last time. So even as the mark of the beast identified those who had taken the mark of the beast as followers of the Antichrist, this mark on their foreheads, whatever it may be, identifies them as true worshipers of God. Now, verses 2 and 3. It's all a part of the same vision. Notice there in verses 2 and 3 now. Out of heaven, John hears this voice with tremendous range. And it's like that of many waters. And again, he's describing it. You know, think about this. I mean, uh, you know, John is actually limited in his ability, in his capacity to explain these visions that had been given to him by God. You know, words are insufficient. He's seeing things that human eyes have never even seen before. So he's restricted in the way that he's able to communicate these things that he's seen in his vision. So he likens this voice, right, with this tremendous range, and he likens it unto many waters. It's sort of like the idea of a rushing river or a waterfall. And I don't know if you've ever stood by a rushing river or a waterfall. It can be deafening at times. You know, I remember the first time, you know, as a young kid, well, I wasn't all that young. I was about maybe like 20, maybe 20, yeah, 20, maybe 20, 21. And when I first hitchhiked out to the coast from the East Coast, and uh, one of the rides took me into Colorado. I was on my way out to California to study 
Hatha Yoga at the Integral Yoga Institute in L.A. And uh, just one of my crazy journeys, you know, on my path to find God. And so I landed in Colorado. And I happened to get dropped off right by the Colorado River. And it was in springtime when all of the waters uh, off of the Rocky Mountains were melting. And boy, the Colorado was really rushing. And I remember standing there by myself. I, I might have... I might have just smoked a joint, actually, and uh, because I was like, the, the sound of the water was actually deafening. I was like amazed. Here's a city kid for the first time, you know, standing in front of the Colorado, the rushing Colorado River, probably stoned, and uh, as, as much as I was back then, usually a lot of the time, and, uh, and the sound of those, I'll never forget it, just impressed upon my our mind, even to this day, the sound of it was actually deafening. So anyway, just some kind of an idea of what John was experiencing here. It rolls, the sound, it echoes. Uh, and then like a clap of thunder, notice there in this description, it gathers in volume, and then it finally individualizes into the voice of many harpers with their harps. And I... And just a little bit of trivia here. Harps in the Bible are always associated with joy. So it was a joyful experience that John had received. Now the song that the 144,000 sung, I told you we were going to get back to this, is peculiarly their own. It's their song of salvation. And listen, they're singing it out of their own experience. And each one of them had their own experience. Even as, if given the opportunity, every one of you could stand and share your own experience in the way that you came to know Christ. And also what Christ is even doing presently within your life. It's a song that Christ has put on your lips. And you know, you just think about this. I mean, you might not have the aptitude or the capacity or you know, the gifts or the ability as do many Christian songwriters have. But, you know, think about like guys like Chris Tomlin or, you know, someone like that, of that caliber. And, uh, you know, many of the songs that they've written were out of their own personal experience, right? And, uh, and such was the case with this 144,000. And so only, though, only they knew or were familiar with the lyrics of that song because they were singing it out of their own experience. It may not have had any melody to it, right? But they were just expressing what God had done in their thanksgiving and their joy for what God had done. Even as we have our own song of salvation to sing, out of our own personal experience, not known by others, right? Unless you had the opportunity to share your testimony with someone else. It's a song of joy. It's a song of thanksgiving. Uh, it's all about our own personal uh, testimony. Okay, let's go back to this vision now, verse 4. Let's read verse 4 once again. Now these, the 144,000, and this is curious, and you know, I'm just going to trip on this a little bit, okay? If I can use that term. And I'm just going to put out some possible explanations for what is recorded for us there in verse 4. Notice what it says. Now these, the 144,000, are ones who were not defiled with women, 
And obviously, I believe that this is referring to fornication, because if you're married, you're not going. If if you happen to have a sexual relationship with someone in the opposite sex, you're not defiled, right? I mean, God has made us, you know, physical and sexual uh, beings to enjoy it within the framework of the marriage relationship. So don't misunderstand here. But anyway, they are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. Listen, there are, there are probably, within this one verse, four lessons for us to learn. This verse is, so, well, this whole text is so rich and so full. Okay, so let's break this down. Let's, first of all, this whole idea, not defiled with women. Now, does that suggest to us that all of the members of this company of the 144,000 are men? Well, it seems to suggest that, right? But again, I don't want to be dogmatic about it, because think about it. Then the Bible goes on to declare, and, and also says that they are all virgins. So does that suggest that they were all women? Or are they made up of men and women? We're, we're not quite sure. Or does the idea of defilement refer to them being celibate? It's a decision that they made. To be celibate, for what reason? Well, for, so that they wouldn't have any kinds of distractions within their lives. Listen, I mean, I don't want to embarrass anybody, but a lot of the counseling that we, that we do, particularly with, I'm only going to speak for the men, you know, have to do with, uh, you know, sexual issues and stuff. You know, how we overcome the temptation and not fall into that, to that sin. So this is something that, you know, we often address as single men. I don't want to speak for the women. But this group, if it does indicate celibacy, this is a group that's not concerned with having any kind of a relationship with the opposite sex. I'm talking about a romantic relationship. I'm talking about a physical relationship. I'm talking about a sexual relationship. Now, I, I kind of lean towards that explanation. And the reason why I believe that is because think of the times in which they appear. These are extremely difficult times. Remember when Paul was writing to the church at Corinth that was just riddled with all kinds of problems and and difficulties, and dilemmas, and, and he counsels them. What does he say? It's recorded first in 1 Corinthians in chapter 7, in verse 32. He says, but I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, and how he may please the Lord. And isn't that true? You know, because, there, and I'm not to say, it's not a bad distraction, but it does take away from the time that you will spend with the Lord, Right? And it's just a matter of fact. You're going to have to meet your, your partner's needs, your spouse's needs, your wife's needs, your husband's needs, your kid's needs. And uh, it's a good distraction. Don't misunderstand if that's what you're called to. But in difficult times, it would rather serve you well, not if you're single, not to pursue a relationship. When things are all you know, chaotic and confused and difficult and you're struggling... It's not good during that particular time to enter into a, a relationship. So I kind of lean more towards that explanation as it relates to 
than being defiled with women. But again, here's another uh, plausible uh, explanation. I I think that the answer uh, to this may be found, and I I think it sort of like works along with what I've just suggested. Uh, The answer may be found in the next sentence there in verse 4, where we are told these, the 144,000, are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goes. So what's the idea here? Well, this 144,000 is truly a separated, sanctified bunch of individuals. Uh, Now, there may be another application here, though. It may imply that they are uh, free from spiritual fornication. So this whole idea might have nothing to do with physical relationships at all, but it might have a, uh, an application of spiritual things, referring to spiritual fornication or spiritual adultery. And there are many portions of Scripture that address itself to that fact. Like, for example, in James chapter 4, in verse 4, when he's talking about the Christian life, and, uh, you know, James, the book of James is one of those books that wasn't sent to one particular uh, church. It's referred to as a general epistle. And so it was to be passed around from one church to another. So James is actually addressing the entire Christian community and not one particular church that was dealing with any particular situation. So he's addressing Christians and the Christian life and the Christian walk. And here's some of his counsel. If you look at it in context, he's talking about spiritual adultery or committing spiritual fornication. And he says, adulterers or adulteresses, do you not know that the friendship with the world is against or enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of a God. In other words, He's encouraging the body of Christ to practice separation. So I, you know, I personally think that that's what this whole thing is all about. When the reference to being defiled with women, the application has more to do with spiritual things than physical things. And of course, this is one of those gross sins of apostate Christianity that will take place in the last days. We were warned about this sort of thing in the uh, Second Timothy. You know, the, the Bible tells us in the last days, many would depart from the faith, having itching ears, right? This is something that I think will, will be uh, uh, happening during the, uh, the seven years of tribulation. And so anyway, getting back to the 144,000, throughout the tribulation, this group of people refused to take part in those idolatries and fornications of the masses, and think about this, who presently are worshiping the Antichrist. Think about all of what's going on, when all of a sudden there's this 144,000 that remain faithful unto God. So therefore, this may all be about a people that's marked by separation and cleanness of heart. So that's what it may be describing. That's what it may be referring to. And then let's go back to our text now. We're not finished with that first vision. Notice there in verse 4, we are told that they are redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and the Lamb. Now that brings us to our third point. Being Jews, 
the 144,000 out of the 12 tribes of Israel, 12,000 out of each tribe, right? They are the first fruits of Israel. So that brings us to our third point this morning, and that is the first fruits of Israel, that is the first fruits of Israel to be saved. But folks, there's more to come. There's going to be a greater harvest of Jews during the seven years of tribulation. Now let me give you a cross-reference for this. In the book of Zechariah, let's go back to Zechariah. And again, he has the last days in view. In chapter 12, in verse 10, what does it say there? In those days, notice it's up here on the screen, I will pour out on the house of David. Who's the house of David? It's Israel. And on the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Who's living in Jerusalem? The Jews. The spirit of grace and supplication. And then they will look on me, whom they have pierced, referring to Christ. Yes, they will mourn for him, as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one who grieves for a uh, firstborn. Okay, so, you see that? So no longer at that moment, when the scales are removed from before their eyes, no longer will they refer to their God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they will bow down and worship and acknowledge Christ as the second person of the Godhead, as God Almighty. What a day that's going to be for the Jews, right? Remember that God isn't finished with what he had promised to do amongst his people, Israel. And many of those promises will come to fruition during the seven years of tribulation. Okay, but let's talk about some of the 144,000's additional qualities. Let's go back to our text, verse 5. And in their mouths was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. The idea, as I mentioned before, without fault, they are beyond reproach. But notice here in verse 5, and their mouth was found no deceit. In other words, they were truthful. And isn't this one of the major characteristics of being a Christian? That we are truthful in the things that we say, but more importantly, in the things that we do. Now think about this. The tribulation period in which they live is especially a time of deceit and falsehood. Because remember, we were told in one of our previous studies that the Antichrist will come in the power of Satan with lying wonders. 2 Thessalonians in chapter 2 in verse 9. Write that down and check that out just in case you forgot. We've already covered this before. 2 Thessalonians in chapter 2 in verse 9. And there we are told, let me say it again, the Antichrist will come in the power of Satan with lying wonders. In my father's house, there's a place for me. In my father's house, where I long to be. We're so glad you joined us today on In My Father's House for our continuing verse-by-verse study through the book of Revelation. If you'd like to hear more messages from Pastor Mike, please visit our website at harvestnyc.org. 
You can listen online at oneplace.com by searching for Harvest Christian Fellowship or Pastor Mike Venizio. Viewing our recent services can be an option as well through Vimeo. We also invite you to subscribe to our podcast. Just search your favorite platform for In My Father's House with Mike Venizio. If you're in Midtown Manhattan and looking for a church home, come visit us here at Harvest Christian Fellowship. We meet every week for worship, Bible study, and fellowship. It's easy to get here. You can reserve your seat and get directions at our website. If you can't make it in person, that's okay. Join us on the live stream to participate in our services virtually. Just follow the link at harvestnyc.org. If you have any questions for us, just give us a call at 212-247-1877. We'd be honored to pray for you too, so feel free to let us know how we can do that for you. That number again is 212-247-1877. Would you like to connect with us on social media? You can find us on Facebook and Instagram. Just follow the links at harvestnyc.org. We're so glad you took the time to listen in today, and we hope you'll join us again next time on In My Father's House. There's a place for